Mic check. Hey, like Ruben said, we're Bill and Marilee Menser. It's really good to be here with you this morning in this chamber, <laughs> echoey chamber. <laughs> um, so we are pastoral assistants at New Day Community Church. We spend a lot of our time in Kalamazoo. That's where we live. Um, but we're delighted to be back after a little while to see you all here in Vandalia. It's great to be here. We came, I think, every other week for many months at the beginning of the launch of this church. So it's really good to be back. You have a special place in our hearts. Yes. And it's really nice to see you guys again. Um, yeah, so we are excited to share a message with you this morning. We've ended one series, and we're about to launch into a new sermon series. Marilee's going to introduce that. Yeah, so we are oh, starting nice. a six-week series today um, called Be Light, and we're going to teach through the whole book of First John. That's and um, Bill and I are excited to share the first section of First John with you this morning. We team teach together, so that's kind of different, but fun for us to, to minister together as a couple, so hope you guys um, can follow and enjoy that. But the cool thing about teaching through the book of First John is we're going to um, do an expository teaching style where we look at each verse with the intent of, intent of going deeper and really understand what is God's heart, what is John trying to communicate in each section, in each line of the book. And so that's what we'll be doing over the next six weeks. Um, and you're, we're going to have a different teacher from our preaching team each week. And so you'll be able to hear a different perspective on um, cycling themes. The book of First John is unique in that it cycles through a handful of the same themes. So, you know, we might be reading through chapter three and you're like, hey, didn't we just talk about those things in chapter one. Well, yes, because the way he wrote it was to cycle through these themes. And so um, so you'll start to catch on and hear, um, hear some repeating themes from all the different preachers. So should be fun. I hope you're looking forward to it. I know I am. It's going to be really good. There is one rerun, one person who has to teach more than once during this series. So if you enjoy today, come back when I'm back. If you don't enjoy today, well, mark that on your calendars and plan accordingly. Just kidding. I hope. All right. So I love introductions. That's one thing about me. Um, so what better for me than to be able to speak about the introduction to the book and cover the first four verses, which is John's introduction to the book. So I feel like it's a double dip, a win-win situation. I get to introduce it, then I get to read his introduction, double intros. It's like a dream within a dream, an intro within an intro. It's so exciting. Not everybody loves introductions, maybe as much as I do, but I do. So let's look at the who, the when, and the why for First John, all right? We're going to look at who wrote the book, when was it written compared to the other books of the New Testament, what was going on in the world at that time, and what was the purpose of John writing the book. Sound good? Three W's, it's always good to start things with the same letter to make it memorable. Who and why? All right, so this is the John bubble on this slide. Who was John? Well, he's the author of not only 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but the author of the Gospel of John, the start of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then? John, you got it. Good job. <laughs> and he's also the author of the book of Revelation. 
We're not going to get into that today. That would take many, many sermons, I think, to understand, and I would be the wrong person to do that. So instead, we'll stick with 1 John. But he wrote these other books. You'll see parallels in the other books, the writing style, the messages that um, that he conveys in each of the different books. But when we look at John's life, we first meet him as a fisherman. His brother's name was James. They were sons of Zebedee. Now there's a name for your dad. Maybe Zeb for short. I don't know. Um, But they were sons of Zebedee, and there they were mending nets with their father when Jesus called James and John to come be his disciples. Come follow me, he said, and I'll make you fishers of men, as he said to many of the disciples. So he was one of the 12 disciples, a fisherman called by Jesus to follow him. Then the next two things we learn about John is that him and his brother get this brilliant idea. I think their mom was involved too. They're like, let's ask Jesus if we can like sit on his right and left hand when he comes in his glory and his power. We'll have thrones and it'll be awesome, maybe a scepter and a ring. And so they asked Jesus for that, which they didn't get. Um, But maybe or maybe not, uh, maybe that's why they got the nickname Sons of Thunder. So John had a big personality. He was a bold person and, and we see it in that. Two other things we see about John is that he, was, he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved throughout the Gospel of John. Um, and I don't think he was just bragging, like, hey, I'm the closest to Jesus, everybody. I think there's some accuracy in that. We see it from the verses like when Jesus was on the cross and says to his mom and John who are there, like, hey, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Like there was a closeness there. I think that was accurate. He wasn't just bragging. Although he does brag about being the first to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday morning and beating Peter in the foot race. So who knows? We'll have to ask him when we meet him someday in heaven. But um, we also see that he's part of Jesus' inner circle. So Jesus had these 12 disciples. He had more than that. At one point, he sends out 70. There are 12 that he specifically calls, we read in the, in the four Gospels. But then there are these times where he takes only three with him to do certain things. Right? He goes into a house to heal a child, and he brings just three, Peter, James, and John. Peter and these two brothers. Um, there's another point where um, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified, and he says, come, everybody, pray with me and keep watch. We talked about that in the journey to Easter recently. But then he brings three a little further with him, Peter, James, and John. So John is part of this inner circle of Jesus. Do you love how those little things fly into the slide? That's pretty slick, right? So after Jesus dies, is resurrected, ascends to heaven, the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes, fills the believers, and they start to share this good news of what Jesus did and who he is with the world. It starts right there in Jerusalem, and Peter and John are going to the temple one day, and there's this famous line, you may have heard of it, where uh, someone is begging who can't walk, and And Peter says to him, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I'll give you. Rise up and walk. And the man is healed. Super powerful miracle. Well, John was right there. And then John was there for the subsequent subsequent interviews where the the teachers of the law and the leaders of the Jewish uh, religion are like, hey, Peter and John, stop doing this. We don't like what you're doing here. We don't believe like you believe. And you're making this big impact on the world. And one of my favorite verses in all of Acts is in Acts 4.13. It says, they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So I think that's a key verse in the life of John. This fisherman turned disciple, sometimes, you know, maybe prideful and and wanting to rule on the right hand of Jesus. But this guy who then went on to start to transform the world and make such an impact in the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. We see it again 
He's called a pillar of the early church. Um, many of the books of the New Testament that we read today are letters written from Paul, who is maybe one of the most famous apostles, not one of the 12, but in the early church, Paul you know, was a missionary that took the good news to so many places. And in Galatians 2, he talks about his commissioning to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And he says he was commissioned by those esteemed as pillars. And it's Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John. It says, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me, and they agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, meaning the Jewish people. So that was kind of where Paul goes off to preach the good news to these people who are not Jewish, and then these three pillars are at the church there in Jerusalem um, sharing the good news with the Jewish people, which they all were Jewish people. So that's the who. Love me a good intro. That's the who. All right, let's talk about the when. This may be a little hard to read. Oh, here we go. Charts. Yeah, I love me a good chart, don't I? <laughs> Pat knows. <laughs> so along, this is a timeline. The years are A.D., and it works its way from left to right. And kind of in the 60 to 70 years after Jesus' birth, we see all of these letters written by Paul. Um, <clears throat> Thessalonians, Galatians, etc., then we get into Timothy, we actually see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels written, and then kind of way late on the timeline is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So this letter was written, you know, like 30 to 40 years after a lot of the New Testament that Paul wrote. And so we see different things being addressed by the different letters. A lot of the letters Paul wrote, you read about Jewish traditions and customs, and how do we make sense of the, the Jewish customs in this new world of Christianity, having Jesus come, died, rose again, and really fulfilled all of the Old Testament scripture. So he's talking about things like circumcision. Is it important or not now? Meat sacrifice to idols. Should we eat it or shouldn't we? Those are the things that are in Paul's letters. But then later on, we see this letter of 1 John, and it's addressing some different issues that have popped up in the day which leads right into the why. One of his main reasons in writing the letter was to refuse, refute false teachings. Easy for me to say. So false teachings had risen up at this point. Picture early on when Paul wrote those letters, he had been a missionary to the Gentiles. So these people who were not Jewish came to know Jesus and were living as part of the Christian community. And the word had spread and actually, maybe more so, there were maybe more, there were definitely more believers who were not Jewish than those who were. And so the makeup of the Christian community was completely different than in the very, very early days when Paul wrote those letters. And so there were different ways of thinking, different backgrounds, just like we may come to the message of the good news today with different backgrounds, right? Whether you're from, you know, Elkhart or Vandalia or Kalamazoo or Three Rivers or whatever our, our parallel today is and whatever way you were raised, you know, in, in the city, in the country, you may have a different background that you bring to it. Well, these Gentile believers had all this kind of Greek and Roman thought in their minds and all these different ideas and different gods that they were used to seeing in their city and, and the people around them worshiping these different ways. So instead of having to go over the law of the Old Testament and the way that we used to live as Jews. He's talking to people who are thinking a whole different way. And the te teachings that had popped up or were prevalent in the Gentile communities were like Gnosticism, which is this idea that there's a secret knowledge that can unlock your, your way to the spiritual world and eternal life. 
It's contrary to the Christian belief. They believed that the material world was evil and that only the spiritual realm was good. And so you might see Gnostic believers who were very strict in disciplining their bodies, trying to kind of whip it into shape or, or, or put it in its place. And there were other Gnostic believers who, you know, maybe said, well, who cares about this body? I can indulge and do whatever I want because I, someday I'm going to leave this body behind and become the spirit being. And so these, these anti-Christian beliefs were prevalent. Um, and like I said, it could lead to sinful indulgence if people in the Christian community were affected by it and thought that, hey, when I go to heaven, I'll be free from this body, so who cares what I do? Maybe they were affected by that. Or maybe they put too strict, uh, uh, too heavy a weight on being strict with their body and following all the rules. So these things could be affecting their community, and that's when John is writing this book and what he's trying to combat. And there's one more thing that was really important for him to combat in this day. It's called docetism. Don't worry if you forget the names or if you can't pronounce them, because I'm not sure I can. <laughs> but this was the idea that some people had, that Jesus wasn't really human, that he was some sort of like phantom or ghost teacher from the spirit world that came to teach this special knowledge or whatever. It's heresy, frankly. <laughs> right? It's anti-Christian. It's not what we believe, but it was prevalent at the time. And it's not so different from today that people will say Jesus is something other than what the Bible says he was, you know, or say that there's another way to heaven or to eternal life than through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. It's not so different than today. But these were the things that John was writing to combat. And we'll, I'll get into more of what he says, and we'll get into it over the next, throughout the whole series. The second reason he wrote this book was to give the believers confidence in their faith, to assure them of their salvation. How can we know that we're saved? How do, can we know that we have it right when there's so many differing opinions and views in the world around us? How can we know that we're saved. And so you're going to see throughout the book and throughout this series, the verses that we read, a lot of that word know. We have come to know him if we keep his commands. Dear children, continue in him so we can have confidence and be unashamed before him at his coming. And John's going to use these contrasts in his letter to highlight how we know that we are in Christ, that we are truly saved. He's going to talk about darkness and light. He's going to talk about love and hate, right and wrong false teachers and him being the true teacher that can show you the true way to Jesus being an apostle. So the third thing is he wants to describe righteous living. What does it look like to walk in the light, to walk in love, to truly follow Jesus and obey his commands? So those are the three things. Refute false teachings, give us an assurance of our salvation, confidence in our faith, and describe what it looks like to live righteously. So with that, my intro is done, but there's a bonus intro. John's intro, the first four verses of the chapter, lay the foundation for the whole book, the whole letter that we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at. So I just want to read it to you and highlight what I think he's building in this foundation. Then we'll hand it over to Marilee. So it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That's the first two verses. And what I think John is highlighting here 
First, you see a lot of parallels to the beginning of the Gospel of John, where he says, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus was there in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. And by him, all things were made. So he's building on, not only, he's not only building a foundation for this letter he's writing, but he assumes um, a familiarity with the Gospel, too. You know, this community of Christian believers had already read his first book. And here comes the sequel. You know, they've already read, and he's calling back to the fact that Jesus was divine. He is God. He was there at creation. Through him, all things were created. He's not something less or something else. And he was actually human. There's all these things in there about seeing and hearing. I've touched him. You can imagine him saying, if he were there in person, maybe not writing a formal letter, saying, I lived and walked with him for three years. I saw the nail scars in his hands and feet. I touched it. I was there when he said this, when he said that. I watched him do it. I reclined with him at the Last Supper. I laid my head on him at the table. He's no ghost. He's real. He was human. I watched him die. I was there with his mother, you know. So you can see how even in the foundation of the book, he wants to refute false teachings and say what is true about Jesus Christ. He continues in verses 3 and 4. Maybe to save time, I won't read them completely here, but he continues to build that and, and call on the fact that, hey, I'm an eyewitness to these things. I was there. You can trust me and what I have to show you because I was an eyewitness with Jesus. I was one of the 12, and I was one of the three. I was in his inner circle, and these teachings I'm about to give to you are true and right in contrast to the false teachings that this community had been hearing. Is that a pretty good introduction? All right, hopefully it was. I think you're ready for a new fresh voice in the next passage, and Marilee will take it from here. All right, let's continue on in verse 5. It says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So verse 5 is saying here that um, John is saying, Hey guys, Jesus told me, And now I'm telling you who God is, what he's like. He is light. And um, and there's not even a hint of darkness in him. There's no evil. There's no um, mysterious dark side to him. He's only light. He's only purity and goodness. And this truth that God is light is just embedded throughout all of Scripture, isn't it? There's just loads and loads of verses about him being light. Here's a few. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Jesus says, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in the darkness. And there's a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 9, 2 that says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And so the fact that God is light points to his holiness, his moral purity, his goodness, Um, that he is full of truth and revelation. So God is light. And verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I love this scripture. It's so good. So it's saying here that if we have, if we're walking in the darkness, which means a consistent pattern of sinning, a consistent pattern of living in the darkness, 
then we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God. Um, And contrastly, if we're walking in the light, if our consistent pattern of walking is with Jesus in unity with him, in relationship with him, then two things happen. The first we can see from verse 7, the first thing that happens is community is affected, right? right? We can have fellowship with one another. We can have an intimate friendship with one another that we couldn't have before when we weren't, you know, walking in the light. So community is affected. And then the second thing is our sins are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Amen. I love that. All right, let's continue in verse 8. Let's read this. uh, Let's just read this passage together in unison. Here we go. If we We say that that we have have no sin, we we deceive deceive ourselves, and and the the truth truth is not in us. us. If If we we confess confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All right. So if we say um, things like, I'm not a sinner or, you know, my sins aren't that big of a deal, um, then we're actually lying to ourselves. And I feel like th- these are things that I hear in my daily life at work or, or in the community that, you know, people just don't see sin as that big of a deal or certain sins are bad, but others are accepted and, and absolutely fine. Um, but if we, if we say these things, we're actually lying to ourselves. And verse 10 actually says that if we say, I have not sinned, we're not only lying to ourselves, we're actually accusing God of being a liar. We're saying that he's a liar because he says we all are sinners. He says that sin is a big deal, that we need a savior. That's what he says. And so we actually are saying that he's a liar if we say that um, we've not sinned. But the good news in verse 9 is that if we do confess our sin, if we do come before the Lord and say, I have sinned, and um, we, we submit to his lordship, then, then he is faithful to forgive our sins. And that word faithful, that means every time. He's not moody. Sometimes he's going to forgive us. Sometimes he's not. No, he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can see from this these sections of, of verses that we just read that God takes sin very seriously. It is a big deal to him. And I love expository teaching like this because we can just dive in and see God's heart, how much he hates sin and how corrupt and horrible it is. We know the verse in Romans six twenty three that says, the wages of sin is death. And I was thinking about this scripture and about how you know, when we all go to work during the week, we, we get a wage, right? We get, we get a paycheck on Friday. We work all week, we get a paycheck on Friday. And so it's saying if we go to work for sin all week, on Friday we get handed a paycheck and it's death. Wow. And that, uh, that verse in Romans continues and says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So on, on Friday when we're getting that paycheck, our, our wage is death, Jesus steps in and says, I'll take that. 
I'll, I'll take this. I'll cash it into to my bank account. I'll deal with this. But instead, you get a gift, and that gift is eternal life. Amen. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's look into, um, we're going to cover the first six verses in the second chapter of John as well. Okay. So let's read just verse one, and then we'll pause so I can make some comments. All right. Verse one. My little little children, children, these things things I write to you so that that you may may not sin. sin. And if if anyone sins, we have have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Awesome. And so I love how um, John starts this little section here by saying, my little children. It's actually the first of seven times that he uses this term of endearment, my dear children or my little children. So you'll see that throughout this book. Um, But it's just this beautiful depiction of, you know, of John being this caring, loving father, or in this case, maybe grandfather, because he wrote this very late in his life. And um, he's just writing with care and wanting the church to know one thing in particular, a very important thing that he wanted to express to them, and that is that they would not sin. So that is the goal, that, um, that, that we would not sin, that they would not sin. But the very next phrase, or the very next sentence is, and if anyone sins. So there's a, there's a plan when, when we do fall short um, of that goal, um, there's, there's a few things in play that are really exciting. Well, we learned up in verse 9 that the first thing that we need to do when we sin is we confess our sins. But there's something else really cool that this verse tells us that's happening when we sin. We have an advocate, which means helper. Jesus is that advocate, that helper, who is with the Father. And when we sin, he is actually speaking to the Father in our defense. And so we have this helper when we sin. How amazing is that? What an amazing gospel. Not only does he cleanse us of sin, forgive us of sin, but when we do sin, he helps us. He, he, he fights for us, speaks to the Father on our behalf. What an amazing gospel. Um, so, so he is that helper. We have a helper in heaven, the righteous one. And we know from other places in the Bible, we have a helper in our heart, the Holy Spirit. So guys, we're helped on all sides. I mean, we can't really do any, we can't turn anywhere. God's thought of everything, every angle, there's, there's help on, on all sides. So such a beautiful, loving God we serve. Um, let's read verse two. And he himself is the the propitiation for our sins, and and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Okay. So so that big word, propitiation, Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. That means that Jesus satisfied the just and holy requirement. God had a requirement, and Jesus satisfied that requirement. And the requirement was that... um, sin be paid for by bloodshed by death and so um the situation was that either we die because we've all sinned or a spotless lamb dies in our place 
And so Jesus was willing to do that. He became our substitute and he covered the debt that we owed by enduring the cross. And so the wrath that, you know, this verse is saying the wrath that should have been poured out on you and me was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have been poured out on every human on planet earth was poured out on Jesus. All right, let's go on to verse three and see what that has to say. Let's read it together. Now by this this we we know know that we know him. him. If we we keep his commandments. So in verse 3 here, it starts to um, talk about this vital connection between obedience and being assured of our salvation. It's very interesting. And um, I I know I can relate to this. I don't know about you guys, but there's been times in my life where I've, I've doubted or wondered, like, am I really saved? Um, you know, there's that verse in the Bible about you cast demons out in my name and, but I don't know you, you know, depart from me. And I'm just like, Oh, like how, how can we really know? Can anyone else relate to that? Like, how do you really know if you're saved? Um, and so John is speaking to that. He wants uh, the believers to know, Hey, you can be assured of your salvation. And here's how it boils down to this two things. One, the first Um, is that we look to Jesus as that perfect sacrifice, dying in our place, that's number one, allowing him to cleanse us. And the second one is to keep his commands, okay? And And it's because we know him. Do you see that phrase that's in there? It's not just keep my commands. It's because I know him, I keep my commands. There's this intimacy, there's this knowing that happens first, and then obedience becomes my natural response it becomes our desire it's not a I have to it's a I get to or I want to it's not a burden it's just this outflow and obedience is actually um, the way that we can show love to God you know have you ever had somebody in your life who has everything but you want to get them a Christmas present or or some kind of gift and you're like well what could I give them they have everything um, that's, you know, how we might feel about God. What could we possibly do for him? He has everything. Well, Jesus um, told his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so we actually get to show love to God. He feels, he feels loved and filled up by the love from us when we obey him. How cool is that? Um, and then the last thing I want to point out about this verse is it says, if we keep his commands, and, and that word keep, um, the meaning of that word means to um, guard. And so I'm thinking about guarding his commands, and, um, and, and what types of things would you guys guard? What types of things would someone guard? Valuables. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things that are precious to you, something that you wouldn't want taken or, 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 or fiddled with. You know, you don't want it to be compromised in any way. You want it to be intact. Okay, so, so this is how we're meant to view his commandments. We're meant to guard them and, and keep them intact and not, not stolen or, or tainted or, or taken in any way whole. All right, so let's continue in verse, let's read 4 and 5. Here we go. 
He who, he who says, says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know we are in him. Awesome. So if verse 4 says, if we claim to know God, um, but we aren't guarding his commandments, that we are actually liars, where we are spiritually deceived or fakes. Um, that's, the, that's the truth of that verse there. You know, we, we claim to have this genuine relationship with God, but, but we don't because we don't guard his commands. Verse 5, whoever's obedient, though, and does keep those commands, the love of God is fulfilled. It's actually brought to completion in that person. The love of God is made complete in that person, and they can be assured of their salvation and know that they know him. And then the last verse that we're going to look at today is verse 6, and we can read it together. He who says he he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. And that's talking about Jesus there. He who says he abides in Jesus ought to walk as Jesus walked. And, um, you know, salvation in a relationship with God isn't only about a ticket into eternal life with God. It's, it's also about becoming like Jesus and learning to walk just as he walked. In this case, walking in the light. And um, as we have this um, consistent pattern in our life of abiding in Jesus, of staying close, um, when we're connected, when we're up close and personal, he is our example. We're right there. If, if, I'm, if Bill is Jesus and I'm me and I'm living life connected, abiding in him, then where he goes, I'm going to be quite aware of that. Right. I'm going to walk as he walked. I'm going to stay in the light. How can I get away? If he is light, how could I avoid being in the light because I'm abiding? So abiding is really the key here in walking in the light and staying in the light. If I'm not abiding... It's easy to kind of stray over here, like, oh, let me get, let me get back over here, right? And so, um, so that's the encouragement there, to, to walk in the light as he is in the light and to become like Jesus. All right, you want to take uh, the closing? Yep. So let's just go back to this slide here that talks about the three reasons that John wrote the letter, to refute false teachings, to give the believers <sighs> confidence in their faith, and to describe righteous living. And... <clears throat> It's really easy in our day to be swayed by the swirling ideas, right? If you just spend 15, 20 minutes scrolling through social media applications on your phone or whatever, right? There's all these ideas out there, um, you know, totally anti-Christian, obviously anti-Christian, non-Christian ideas, but also um, ideas that are all mingled together with or say that they are part of the Christian faith, but they're just not in alignment with God's word in the Bible, you know? So as we look to apply this first part of the book to our lives, you know, and, and think about guarding God's word and his commandments in our lives, maybe that's something that you want to apply this week is, you know, what do you consume in your thought life? You know, 
how do you deal with the things that swirl around, the false teachings that swirl around in our day? Um, and also maybe, you know, you've had doubts or wondered, like, am I saved? Maybe you know you're not. <laughs> maybe um, you are, but you're not abiding. Maybe you're not walking closely with the Lord, walking in the light. Um, maybe that's where you need to apply this message to your life this week. It's funny, this morning, Marilee got up before me and she's getting ready and turned on the lights in the next room and, and then I got out of bed and I walk in and, and the first thing I do is like walk in and close my eyes and I was like, it's so bright, Marilee, it's so bright. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Why'd you turn on the lights? It's hurting my eyes. Um, I think there's a spiritual parallel there, you know? Not only when we walk in total darkness and don't know the Lord and we come to know him, it takes some time for our spiritual eyes to adjust. And it's a little painful, right? All of a sudden, you're trying to live a different way. You're trying to think a different way, and it's painful. But I think also, you know, I believe many of you are Christians. You're following the Lord the best you can, like me. And um, there can be little dark corners of our lives, just like a dark corner of the house. And it's gathering dust or it's dirty or that's the place you go when you don't want anybody to see what you're doing or what you're thinking. And um, the invitation is to let that be lit up with the light of Jesus, you know. And it's not, a, um, it's not an anger that God would want to do that, but it's an invitation to let him into that place to light it up. And when he lights it up, it can be redeemed. It can become a great place instead of, you know, that weird little dark place under the stairs where it's all full of candy wrappers because that's where you go to hide and eat your candy you're not supposed to eat, you know. I don't know, I'm making something up. Instead, it can be lit up. It could become an amazing place. Don't look under the stairs, Pat. That's where my candy's at. It could become an amazing place. Let's let him renovate those little corners of our hearts and lives. Let's let him do that. So would you just stand with me? I'm just going to pray. And if you want to do that, you can kind of just agree with me in prayer. And when we're done, the prayer team will be available to pray with you if you want to dig into that a little deeper or anything else. But let's just pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the sacrifice you made, Jesus, on the cross, that you were willing to take the wages we earned, which was death, to be our substitute because we had earned that death. And instead, you offer us the gift of eternal life. What a loving Savior you are. What a loving Creator God you are, God. We just thank you for that. And God, we want to embrace your light. Lord, those of us who don't know you, God, we see a glimpse of your light and your goodness in the words and the songs that were spoken today. And we choose to step into the light, to accept you as our Savior, as our Lord, and to follow you, to walk with you through this life. God, those of us who are doing that the best we can, Lord, we recognize that if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we just confess to you that we do have sin, God, that we're doing the best we can, but there are places that need your light. There are places where we've chosen to walk our own way instead of staying in step with you. And we bring that to you now, Jesus, so that you can forgive us, that you can cleanse us, that you can fill us with our righteous, your righteousness, and that you can enable us to walk in step with you. We want to do that 
out of love and thankfulness for what you've done for us. We love you so much, God, and we thank you for New Day Community Church Vandalia, a safe place to come on the good days and the bad days through thick and thin to join this community of believers in worshiping and following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for this morning. It's been a pleasure to be with you. As we wrap up and end the service, the prayer team will be available right on this side of the front. Come and see one of them if you have any prayer need whatsoever or you want to respond to the message further. There's also the prophetic team is available on this side of the stage. These are people who have been trained to just pray, hear God's encouraging word for you, and share that with you this morning. Take a minute to come see them if you haven't already sometime in the recent past. Other than that, there are refreshments. Enjoy time together, and we'll see you next week to continue the series with Pastor Anthony. Have a great week.